King Jesus. This morning we are filled with praise in our hearts, thankfulness, joy, peace, calm, because we know that you live. We are assured that you live. We are assured that you are reigning from your throne. We are certain that you are alive, that you have been raised from the dead as the first fruits of our own resurrection. And so in this moment, Lord, we just revel in that, glory in that, we just find peace and calm and joy in that. That is why we are gathered together on this day. Heavenly Father, we pray that this day would have your blessing upon it. That you would move through your word, through your spirit, to the hearts of men and women, teenagers, boys and girls. That Lord, you would stir us with the truth of your word. That you would convict us of our sin. That you would deepen our worship and lift up our heads. Move among your people, O God. Speak, Lord, with the authority and the power of the prophet and with the gentleness and kindness and grace of the priest. Lord, move among your people. Move us closer to you. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Have you ever thought about what it will be like on the day of judgment? Have you ever thought of, about what it will be like when you are standing before an all-seeing, all-knowing, omnipotent God to be held accountable for your life, to be held accountable for your unrighteousness? To give an account for the things that you have said and thought and done and the way that you have lived. Have you thought about what it will be like in that moment where perhaps for the first time in your life and certainly for with, to the greatest extent in your life in which you are fully aware of your own unrighteousness. I'm certain that as we stand in the presence of glory... As we stand in the presence of true, unfiltered righteousness, holiness, that we will become convinced of our own condemnation. That we will become convinced of our own wickedness and our own sinfulness. Perhaps our minds will become full of all of the lustful thoughts and flawed logic that we've used. Perhaps our minds will become filled with all of the instances that we didn't have time to go and be a part of God's church or to open God's word or to seek God's face. Perhaps our minds will be filled in that moment as we tremble in his presence of all of the things that we never got around to. The things that we did that we shouldn't have done. The things that we didn't do that we should have done. I'm certain that in that moment, all of us will tremble and bow and be broken and feel totally worthless as we stand in the face of glory. And so I ask you this morning what I heard another preacher ask once to his congregation. What will give you boldness at the judgment seat on that day? 
What will give you boldness to stand before the Lord and give an account for your life? What will give you boldness to stand before that which is truly holy and truly righteous and be confident and certain that you will not face his judgment and wrath? See, I think that is the place where a Christian should live. A Christian should live their lives with their eyes on the judgment seat. Understanding the account that is to be given. And as we begin our first week of Advent today, that's where I want to bring us. That's the question I want to bounce around in your head as I preach. What will give you boldness? What will give you certainty? What will give you confidence on the last day? If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. As, as Zach said, Advent simply means the coming of an important person. The word Advent means to come. So as the church gathers up for these four Sundays leading up to Christmas, we celebrate Advent and we are celebrating two Advents. Christ's first Advent in which he came and was born to the Virgin and Christ's soon coming second Advent in which he will return in victory and collect his church. And so over the next four weeks, we're going to kind of walk through systematically what that looks like and try to process for as a church how we can uh, deepen our worship during the, this season. And so we're going to talk about uh, Christ's advent. We're going to see that from several different perspectives, beginning from the New Testament to the prophets of old. We're going to look back, we're going to look forward, and it's going to be a glorious time for us as a church family. So if you have your Bibles open to Romans 3, would you stand with me as we prepare to read God's Word together? We're going to be in Romans 3. We're going to begin in verse 21, and we'll read through verse 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his inerrant word this morning. So as we come into Romans chapter 3, beginning in verse 21, we're seeing a shift. You'll notice how verse 21 opens with, but now. So we see Paul saying, all right, all of that has been true in the past. All of that is what I wanted you to understand so that you can understand this. So, so all of that is true, but now. Now something else is true. Now there is a new reality. Now we're going to see there is a new covenant in Christ Jesus. So beginning in Romans chapter 1, about verse 18, going all the way through Romans chapter 3, verse 20, what Paul has been doing is Paul has been talking about the plight of humanity. Paul has been walking us through what this has looked like over the course of human history so that we might understand our position before God. 
Paul has been saying and explaining to us why the world is as it is and why it is that, that we seem so far from God. That man in his wickedness has rebelled against God. That man, though God has made himself clearly known and to be able to be clearly perceived, man has rejected him. And in fact, worshipped the creation rather than the creator. And twice in those first two and a half chapters, God, uh, Paul says that man is now without excuse. That because God has made himself clearly known, because God can be clearly perceived through the creation, through his own revelation of himself, that as man stands there in their wicked rebellion before God in the judgment, that every man, every boy, every girl, every teenager, every college student is without excuse as they stand to face the God of the universe. And so Paul has been explaining that the law of old has been accusing us. The law of old has been showing us how clearly short we're falling of true righteousness. The law of old has shown us how far short of true holiness we really are. And so the law of old has in fact enslaved us and has in fact condemned us to say that we are not right with God and are to face judgment as a result. But now, but now, the law was accusing us, but now, the law had condemned us, but now. You were sinners, dead in your trespasses, but now. You were sinners, enslaved to your sin, but now. You were dead and without hope, but now. You had no chance of redemption, but now. You could not be right with God, but now. Times have changed. The old covenant has went away, the new covenant has come, and the old is obsolete, having been fulfilled in the new. Paul is trying to set us up. So that we can truly understand and revel in the glory of the gospel. And so he says, look to Christ. Look at Christ. But now, look at the righteousness of Christ. Think of Christ. Christ. All of that is true. But now, Christ has come and you can be justified in Christ. So what I want us to see first of all, right out of the gate when it comes to Christ's advent, is Christ's advent shows us how far short we've fallen. Christ's advent shows us how far short we have fallen. That all of us are wicked and in our sin, that all of us have rebelled against God. That's what it says, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Now what does that mean? That's kind of an interesting way to put it, isn't it? That we have fallen short of the glory of God. Like, what does Paul talk about, the, the glory of God? What does he mean there? And I think what we have here is Paul alluding back to the Garden of Eden. Remember what the Garden of Eden was. The Garden of Eden, Eden was the creation as it was intended to be. The Garden of Eden was God putting things together so that we might see how he intended it to be and so that man might exist in relationship with him. 
so that we can see how man is engineered and, and built and formed and how it is to function, how what we see now is not as it should be. Genesis 1 and 2 is as it should be. And so as he's alluding back, as he's talking about the glory of God, I think, about, I think what he's talking about here is who, who we were built to be and how we were engineered. What does Genesis 1 say about us? It says that we were made in the image of God. That we have a moral agency as God is a moral agent. That we have the capacity for good as God has the capacity for good. That we have the capacity to live in a righteous relationship with God because we are his image bearers. And so being his image bearers, having dominion over the earth, we are to be that which as mirrors are to a face, the reflectors of God's glory through all of the creation. So what is Paul saying? Every single one of us, because of the sin nature that we inherited and was imputed to us by Adam and Eve, by our first parents, the very, every single one of us, whether you are white or you are black, whether you are young or you are old, whether you are rich or you are poor, every single one of us has fallen short of that picture. Every single one of us have fallen short and reflecting back God's glory because what happened? Sin corrupted God's image in us. Sin defaced God's image in us. So that now we are rebels in spirit. Rebels in heart. Now compare that to Christ. Compare that to Christ. Christ comes. He's born to the virgin. He lives his life. And how does he live it? Christ lives his life as the perfect image of God, as the perfect image bearer of Almighty God. So much so that in John's gospel, Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. That, that what you are seeing in me, what your eyes are beholding in me, is in fact the very image of God himself. Think about Jesus' life. Jesus never once thought an impure thought. He never lusted after a woman. He never, he never did something good with a bad, self-centered motive. Jesus never gossiped. Jesus didn't harbor bitterness or resentment. Jesus didn't hold grudges. Jesus never neglected a beggar that passed his way. Never turned around a child that walked up to him. That Jesus did all of the things the Bible talks about. That Jesus lived out the law. And he lived out not just the letter of the law. Jesus lived out the spirit of the law. Jesus, even though he was much busier than every single one of us, never failed to have time to go to God's word or to seek God's face and commune with him in prayer. That God, Jesus is, in fact, everything that we are not. And so as Paul is telling us that all have sinned and all have fallen short of the glory of God, when we look to Christ, when we look to his life, when we look to his cross, then we're able to see, yes, I'm not there. I'm not him. I'm not even close to that. Now maybe you would say, but look, nobody's Jesus, but I'm still a pretty good dude, all right? 
Like, like, yes, I have a lustful thought about a woman who doesn't, but I've never actually slept with a woman that's not my wife. So that's, that's, that's certainly above, above board. That's countercultural we talk about in the church, right? Like, like yeah, I, I, I gossip some, but I'm not nearly as mean as she is. Like, she's just, she's just mean. I just do it just to pass the time. Have a good laugh every now and then, right? So, so, so if, you're, if you find yourself wanting to justify in your mind, wanting to, wanting to lessen your, the, the gap, lessen the divide between you and the Christ, and, and, and lessen how, how short of God's glory you're falling, I want to caution you. Listen to these words by Bishop Handel Moulet. The harlot, the liar, the murderer are short of it, but so are you. Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you on the crest of an alp. But you are as little able to touch the stars as they. Brothers and sisters, we must be honest with ourselves. Friends that are not yet Christians, we must be honest with ourselves about who we are. We are in rebellion against God. Everything our heart defaults to is we default to ourselves and away from the Lord. We default to do what we want to do, not what he would have us to do. We default to indulge our own self-centeredness, not his glory. Our default is toward humility, not toward pride. Our default is toward lust, not toward virtue. Everything in our life that we default to, we default to the flesh. And all of us in our nature are as corrupt as we can be before God. So I say if we want to have any understanding of this book, if we want to have any understanding of the gospel, if we want to start with the word in any avenue of our church, any arena of our lives, we must first be honest with ourselves about who we are before God. Because until you are honest with yourself about who you are before God, you cannot understand one word of the Bible. The Bible does not make sense until you look in the, in the mirror and realize that you are a wretched sinner in the sight of an almighty and, un, and totally righteous God. As a matter of fact, you can't even understand or love or glory in the good news of a gospel until you understand that the Bible says there is bad news for us first. There is bad news for us first. So Christ's advent shows us how far short we've fallen because Christ's advent shows us what it means not to fall short of the glory of God, but to live out as a perfect image bearer. But then we get to verses 24 and 25, and it's a game changer. When I was growing up in the church, rightly, I was taught to memorize Romans 3.23. It's part of the Romans road. It's a good thing. But as I was studying this week, I just started wondering, like, why was I never taught to memorize verses 24 and 25? Because Romans 3.23 needs verses 24 and 25. If all that we've got and all that we know is that we fall short and that we've broken it and that we don't measure up, we're left in despair. We're left without hope. We're left without a chance. We're missing the but now. So let's read those verses together. Christian, just let your heart worship. Just let your heart worship here. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Come on now. Come on now. Not only does Christ's advent show us how far short of God's glory we fall. But at the very same time Christ's Advent secures our righteousness. Secures our righteousness. Think about this for a second. All of us are condemned. All of us know we have not measured up to the glory of God. We have not measured up to his standard of holiness. We have, we have broken. We are unrighteous and now unable to live in a righteous relationship with him. But now, but now, you see, once you begin to understand how far short of God's glory you fall, then you're able to, you're set up and prepared to revel in just how big God's grace is. That once you understand how big your sin is, and how, how condemning your position is, and how short and humbled and humiliated you are, then, and only then, are you able to appreciate the gift. And it says here, Paul says, you have been justified. Now look, nobody but Galen here even knows what that means apparently. Because if y'all knew what that meant, y'all either be down on your face, you'd have your hands raised, you'd be praising the Lord. So let's just, let's talk about that a minute. What does it mean? That sounds churchy, that sounds big. Maybe you've heard those words all your life and you've never really been able to wrap your brains around, yeah, I'm justified, okay, what's next? Let's, let's go to Cracker Barrel, right? You know what that means? Justification is a legal term. It's the, it's the terminology that a judge would use when you have a man and he's, he's, uh, he's standing before the judge and the prosecution has presented all of the evidence against him. And the judge looks down to him and exonerates him as an innocent man. As a man that is not owed any consequence. As a man that does not deserve any retribution or any hardship in his life. That he is totally exonerated totally set free from all charges that have been brought against him. Church, you are justified. You are justified. Think about this. Think about the day, the judgment day. You are standing before the great judge of all of the universe. The enemy, Satan himself, is the lead prosecutor on your case. The prosecution's only task is to prove that you have sinned but once. Because a single sin against an infinite God is an infinite offense. And so his only responsibility is to prove that you have sinned but once and the wages of that sin is death. Oh, and he's feeling confident. He's feeling confident. The prosecution has been wading through stacks, miles high of all of your offenses. He's walking through and man, you should just see the list of thoughts that you've had. You should just see that stack alone. Man, he thought about her. He thought about that. He did that, but was really thinking about this. Every good thing you've done with an unvirtuous motive, there. Every time you've cussed in your head, even if you didn't say it, there. Every time you've had bitterness and resentment, but a smile on your face, there. 
Every time you've worked in your church begrudgingly or written out your check as an offering without a cheerful heart, there. Then let's talk about actions. What about all the times you talk back to your mama? You think those aren't there? You think you outgrew that sin? It's still there. Think about all the times that you've lashed out at your husband or your wife. There. Think about all the times that you've lied to make yourself look good. There. Then what about all the things that you should have done that you never did? What about all the times you just didn't have time for the Lord? All the times that you should have loved him as being most important in your life, as being the, the, the blazing center of all of your life, and yet what? You loved your family more, you loved your job more, you loved your money more, you loved your things more, you loved your, your popularity and your prominence more. All of it's there. Every single day, every single time, all of it is there as you are standing in the courtroom of an all-knowing, all-seeing God. Your case is airtight, and you are indefensible, except Jesus came, except the baby was born to the virgin, except he grew in wisdom and stature, except he lived a pure life, except he met the standards of glory, except he went to the cross in your place, except he was raised from the dead, except he stripped from you your filthy robe and placed on you the robes of righteousness, except that you have been credited with his righteousness and your sin has been covered, except you are justified. You are justified. The judge has looked at you and he has exonerated you. He has not pardoned you merely. Instead, he has not just said that you are no longer, uh, you are no longer on the hook. He has said, in fact, you are righteous. You are pure. You are taken out of the prison. You are placed into the palace. You have been justified. Church, can we get excited about something? Can we get excited about something? You fell short. You were hopelessly short, but now the standard has been met, justified in the eyes of Almighty God. Would you say it with me? I am justified. Let's say it together. I am justified. One more time. I am justified. The next time you are overcome with guilt, preach to yourself. I am justified. The next time you feel as though you have no hope, you have no place, I am justified. The next time you, the world convinces you that you are worthless and not worth living, I am justified. You have been justified, exonerated in the eyes of Almighty God, so the judgment of man is now irrelevant. But you know what we all understand about gifts? And Paul tells us this was a gift, right? Paul tells us this was a gift. What all of us know about gifts is that there is no such thing as a free gift. You've got to convince the government of that. But we all know there is no such thing as a free gift, don't we? In fact, most of us, we measure the value of a gift by its costliness to the giver. And we understand that that costliness is different if it's your four-year-old or if it's your rich uncle. Right? We understand the difference, right? But we understand that the value of the gift is often found and always found in the costliness to the giver. If we know that to be true, 
And there has never been a more costly gift. There has never been a greater gift offered to any of us, received by any of us, than the gift of our justification. Because our justification was paid for not with gold, not with green paper money. Our justification was paid for by the very life of the Son of God as He shed His blood and poured out His life on a cross. That's what Paul is meaning when he says, and he has been put forward as a propitiation for your death or for your righteousness, right? Your, your, Bible, might say, your Bible might say that uh, he has been put forward as a propitiatory offering or your Bible might even say that he has been put forward as the mercy seat, as your mercy seat, bringing us back to that picture of the, the temple and the holies of holies and the day of atonement. You see, when Christ came, for you to be justified, for you to be right with God, for the unrighteous to be made righteous. The wrath of God had to be satisfied. The, the wages of sin had to be paid, and Christ Jesus paid it on the cross. That's what propitiation means, that the wrath of God has been satisfied by the sacrifice of Christ, by the death of Christ, that he has put himself Forward as the great high priest laying himself down on the very altar, the mercy seat, to be slaughtered as the lamb to be slain. That he has put himself forward, or that he has not put himself forward, but he has placed himself there. And what I want you to understand that all of this was at the initiation of God Almighty. All of this was according to the sweet providence of the Heavenly Father. That if we are not careful, we can buy into the heresy, even implicitly, that the the good God of the New Testament came only to satisfy the angry, bloodthirsty God of the Old Testament. But Paul does not allow it. He says that God put forward the Son. God put forward Christ. God planned this in his sweet providence. God was unfolding this since Genesis. God was looking at this in Leviticus. God was planning for this when he pardoned David. God was looking forward to this. And so when we come to the cross, what do we see? We see the cross is the place where both love and wrath converge. The place where these two rivers of the gospel come together to flow into a glorious rendering of our own justification. That, brothers and sisters, is why the cross is at the center of Christian worship. That is why the cross is at the center of every sermon we preach. That is why the cross is at the center of our very sanctuary. Because it is the cross that is put forward in the providence of God for the justification of man as the Son is laid there in slaughter to absorb and satisfy the infinite wrath against infinite sin against an infinite God now the question that I have pondered myself as I have meditated on this during this week of Thanksgiving the question that I have faced myself is do I believe this do I honestly believe this do I honestly believe that the God who created and owns everything, everything, you, me, the oceans, the mountains, the world, he created it, he owns it, all of it. Do, do I believe that he came, humbled himself, emptied himself of all of that and went and died in my place? Do I 
believe that the word really did become flesh and go and hang on a cross and drip righteous blood for my unrighteous sake? Do I really believe that the God of the universe cares anything about me? What happens to me? What becomes of me? And I ask you the same thing. It's easy for us when we hear these familiar gospel messages just to glaze over and say, I know that story. I know that story. I already know what happens. I've heard about the cross. I know about the resurrection. Yay, let's go to Cracker Barrel. There's two Cracker Barrel references in one sermon. Right? But it's easy for us to glaze over and to forget and to not contemplate. Do I really believe it? Do I really believe it? Do I believe that the word became flesh and dwelt among us to come to a place where he would be rejected by his own creation? Do I believe that he came to live a life of persecution and suffering and humility to ultimately die of thief's death on the cross? Do I believe that he was raised from the dead that I might be raised from the dead? Because brothers and sisters, if we live this way, if we believe this with all of our hearts, if this is truly what we have built our lives around, how can we live as though we are indifferent? How can we live as though 98% of our life is for ourselves and 2% is for him? How can we not offer to him all of our abilities and all of our time and all of our money and all of our resources? How can we not look to him and say, God, what would you have me to do today? God, what do you want with my life? Not what is comfortable for me, not what is safe for me. You already went to the cross, that wasn't safe. How do I honor that? How do I live a life in light of the cross? And so brothers and sisters, I ask you the same. Reflect on your life. Look at where you are. As we look into this Advent season, as we think about the Christ that has come, let us think now that is how we are to go. Do you live as though this is what you believe? Do you worship as though this is what you believe? At the center of your Christmas this year, will he really be there? Not only is Christ's Advent secure our righteousness but don't miss this this is Paul's point in all of this text don't miss this that Christ's advent proves God's righteousness Christ's advent Christ's coming his first coming proves that God is righteous that the main reason the primary reason that Christ came was not for sinners to be forgiven now, that's certainly a reason, an important reason, a reason in which we worship and we glory. But that is not the primary reason. The primary reason that Christ came to earth to be born to the virgin, the primary reason was so that God would be proven righteous and justifying unrighteous sinners. Think about what Paul says. Twice he says it, right? In verses 25 and 26. He says, at the second part of 25, he says, this was to show. This, if I, I read it that way in the very beginning to emphasize this. This was to show God's righteousness. Because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. 
It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who is to come in Jesus. Have faith in Jesus. So, so the, the reason for Christ's coming was that God would be proven righteous, that God would be proving just in being the justifier. Turn with me to Proverbs chapter 17 so I can explain to you better what I mean. Proverbs is right in the middle of your Bible. We're going to look at 17.5. We can see this in the positive in Deuteronomy chapter 20, but I think it's a little clearer, 25, but I think this is a little clearer for us in Proverbs 17. All right? Now remember, this is God-breathed, right? All of it. Old Testament, New Testament, front to back. This is all God-breathed, containing the breath of God. Listen to what it says in Proverbs 17.15. It says, He who justifies, you see that word? He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Whoa. Whoa. We read the Old Testament and we know about Israel's sin and yet they are not wiped from the earth. We read about about. The sin of David and Bathsheba and killing Uriah and having an affair and and the whole cover-up. And yet David is not wiped from the earth. We can even go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. What did God say to Adam if he ate of the tree? He said, if you eat of the tree, you will surely die. He eats of the tree and yet he continues to live. And we go to those stories in the Old Testament and we praise God that he has passed over their sin. We praise God that he has forgiven them of their sin. But you know what? There is a divine dilemma. That God has said that it is unjust, immoral, an abomination for someone, for a a righteous and just judge to declare justified a wicked and unrighteous person. So it is wicked to say David is, to not condemn David for his sin. It can be considered wicked according to the Proverbs 17 standard for for Adam to continue on living, for Israel to continue on as the nation. Except Jesus. Except Jesus. See, John Stott describes this plot beautifully. He says... In fact, he would destroy both himself and us. He would cease to be God, and we would cease to be fully human. He would destroy himself by contradicting his divine character as righteous lawgiver and judge, and he would destroy our human dignity as morally responsible persons created in his image. So Jesus came. So the cross was. See, on the cross, what do we learn? What do we see? We see that God is neither unmerciful toward the sinner, nor indifferent toward the sin. That on the cross, what we see is that God had a plan all alone. And so he was not merely passing over sin, or ignoring sin, or neglecting sin. Instead, he was looking to the future, knowing the cross was to come. Knowing the Christ was to come. He was not indifferent. He was not just 
passing over as though nothing was happening. The sin would be punished for David. And the sin would be punished for Israel. And the sin would be punished for Adam. It would be punished on a cross to a baby born of a virgin, raised as a righteous man who would be baptized by John the Baptist. It would be punished in Christ Jesus himself. Paul's been pointing us this whole time. saying, remember, this is what the prophets talked about. This is who the law predicted. God's divine forbearance was righteous because God's divine plan was to happen. He was not hoping for the Christ. He was not hoping for the cross. He knew that it would come. Just as today, he is not hoping that one day Jesus does return. He knows that he will. And so God, looking forward in time, already being there himself, knew the cross was to come, knew that his son was to die, and was able to pardon and pass over sin to credit Abraham's faith as righteousness because he knew that Abraham's sin would be nailed to a tree on Golgotha. Christ's advent shows, proves, and verifies that God himself is entirely, perfectly, beautifully, supremely righteous. He is just and he is the justifier. He is right and he is good. He is the judge. He is the savior. He is the one in which mercy and love converge. And so he says, for all who will come in faith, For all who will come in faith, you can be righteously made righteous. For all who will come in faith, you can be right in the eyes of Almighty God and enjoy the glory and the grace and the gift of the cross. For all who will come in faith, you can be made right with God. You can be made new. You can be set free. You can be liberated. Wayne Grudem says that faith is the opposite attitude of self-reliance. Depending on yourself. Honestly. In the place of your soul that only you and God know. Have you ever truly given up the control of your life and put your trust in Jesus? Have you ever stopped depending on yourself and started depending solely on Christ? Have you ever found your heart captivated by his glory and his grace and his love while at the same time humiliated and broken and weeping over your sin and unrighteousness? Have you ever found yourself realizing how far short you are and how you can never reach up and grab hold of the glory of God and so dependent upon Christ to make you new? Would you come today? Would you come today? Would you come in faith today? Would you come talk to a pastor today? Would you embrace the gospel today? Christian friends, brothers, sisters, again we go to the cross in faith. Again we go reminding, reclaiming, recommitting ourselves that today we do not depend upon ourselves, but on the work that was done on a cross. For we have been justified. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father,
your gospel is almost so good, it's hard for us to even believe it. But Lord, you have testified to it by your own resurrection. And you have testified to it by so many saints before that have been completely transformed and made new. So many that have been set free. God, on this day, would you convict us of our sin? Would you show us how far short we are? God, on this day, would you justify some? Would you save some? Would you let some come in faith and take hold of the cross in faith? God, I pray for the Christian that lives as though this isn't true. I pray that the Christian who, who sees this, God, that on this day they would be reminded and they would return once again and be filled with awe and wonder and worship.